All right, welcome back to the Movie Battle Podcast. This week you have myself and Nick. How are you doing, Nick? What's going? I got we got we got Spooderman talked about and the death of cinema question mark. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but happy to be here. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I mean, it is a busy week. We're we're breaking record, not just pandemic records. Like we're just breaking actual records now, which is wild. We haven't we haven't had any of those broken in a while, so it's kind of nice. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It, I mean, at the time of recording, the actuals aren't out, but yeah, it surpassed it's No Way Home surpassed The Force Awakens at the box office, which I have fond memories. Even if my my enjoyment of Force Awakens has, has waned over the years, I've I have a fond memory of seeing that movie in theaters and to think about in the middle of Omicron, like <laughs> like just going crazy in the states in this movie. Eclipsing that, that is just a that is a crazy thing to think about, and I think there's a lot of things to parse there that we can get into. Yeah, I uh, I don't know if you messed around with it at all, but trying to buy tickets for this movie uh, the night they launched was chaotic, and that was when I was like, oh, I think I think the movies are back. <laughs> yeah, so it was actually funny enough. It was really easy for me to get my ticket because one of my friends actually texted me to go see it and I was busy. Then I was like, ah, why don't I just go see a later showing? And I looked at the one showing and there was one seat left. And it was actually a decent, it was actually a decent seat. And I was like, ah, let's just do it Thursday night. Why not? And then I, I got lucky. But, uh, yeah, it seems like, I know you were, <laughs> you seemed like you were a little heated for a little bit <laughs> for how tough it was. It was pretty funny to see from afar. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I so I'm an early bedtime kind of person because I like to get up early in the morning. So I was already like pissed to be up at eleven o'clock at night. <laughs> I like at a ten minute waiting period, and then uh, I was like, "Cool, we're moving along. I'll be asleep by eleven thirty. And then like I had my seats picked, and the AMC app just like would refuse to let me pay. And I was like, "Well, I can't leave this lobby, or I get hit with a waiting period." And like my computer was at an hour. And then after like an hour and a half of me refreshing constantly, my uh, wait time on my computer went from five minutes up to over an hour with no time period. And I was like, <laughs> I'm just buying these in the morning. I couldn't go on opening night anyways. So I was like, you know what? So what if I'm slightly to the left of the screen? At least I will have slept tonight. <laughs> now nah, we want exact symmetry in the cinema or else you can't go. That's the only way you can go. Only way you can see it as Marty would as Marty wants you to. Uh, I was just trying to respect the king's wishes, you know? <laughs> I would love to hear what he would have to say about this movie. Uh, that would be... I would pay all the money to I see that. I hope he gets That'd asked. Amazing. Especially <laughs> since he's worked with, you know, one of the big actors in this movie before. He'd be like, Marty, how do you feel about your boy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would... Uh, uh, that would be amazing. <laughs> But uh, b- before we dive into Spider-Man, just the movie, I do want to talk about the box office a little bit, because um, the box office is alive and dead at the same time, which is kind of interesting. So Spider-Man, as you said, is just bursting records without China, um, which is really impressive. So it's at $253 million worldwide from its opening weekend. Uh, sorry, that's that's just the uh, domestic gross but um, it's a little bit over, actually, like, double that worldwide. Uh, but 253 opening weekend domestic is massive. Um, we have not seen anything even remotely close to this since 2019. 
Um, but then everything else is kind of floundering. So you have West Side Story, uh, which opened up um, a little over a week ago, and is sitting at twenty-seven million on a hundred million dollar budget. Uh, so that's you know, I'm sorry, Stephen, but that's a flop, unfortunately. Um, you have Nightmare Alley, which opened up this past weekend with a budget of sixty million. Uh, but grossing only $3 million in opening weekend, it's going to need a miracle to kind of pull through. I mean, even like uh, House of Gucci, uh, which was kind of the biggest non-franchise um, movie, I think. I, they did a really good job marketing. And even the non-movie people in my life were like, yeah, I need to go see that. Um, is only sitting at about $106 million worldwide. Um, and that's on a $75 million budget. And this movie's, you know, all, it's been out for over a month. So it's kind of missed its window. It's golden opportunity to to become a monster success. Um, so it's crazy to see just all of these things floundering and dying while Spider-Man is just making buku bucks at the box office. Yeah, this makes me very sad. I mean, a little good because you want theater workers and everybody to get paid and that's lovely to see but yeah we've been seeing this for a while where it's people are just going to go to the theaters and see their big blockbuster entertainment and then go home and kind of wait for everything else on streaming and we've been talking about this since probably the beginning of this podcast you know um but this is just like one of the biggest contrasts i think we've seen of this and it's so amazing i think because we have, you have the added component of the pandemic and all of this, and it really does put into light. It's like, okay, oh, okay, what are people invested in seeing enough that they will risk getting uh, the virus in order to see it? Uh, and it's clearly only Marvel stuff um, <laughs> or any other big, not even because I wouldn't even say blockbusters because, you know, West Side Story was like over a $100 million budget and no one saw that as well. Um but it's just amazing to see that how little care there is for other properties. Or I think people are they're they're weighing the risks of it and saying, you know, like I don't have to see this movie, so what's the point in risking getting sick or anything worse than that? I'd rather stay home. But with something with Spider Man, you're like that that interest is not weighed at all. Or you're like, I I have to I guess I have to go see it. No, mask up and go see it opening weekend. It is just such a there that is such a crazy kind of thing to see and yeah that Nightmare Alley it's the follow up from Guillermo del Toro who just won Best Picture for his last movie <laughs> um, and we can talk about how Disney has just not marketed that movie at all because they inherited that from Fox and the merger but um, yeah that movie's doing nothing and even but even that movie is a remake so it's not this like it is not like this original story that the original adult story that's getting crushed it's it, it's in, a, in its way it's its own IP but um, yeah, it's just seeing that difference there is just, it's really, it's it's a little disheartening. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it makes me long for the good old days of 2019 when something like Ford v. Ferrari that doesn't really have a, a pre-built audience, you know, could have a $100 million budget and still succeed at the box office. Yeah, just a bunch uh, of dads liking cars <laughs> going out to see that movie. <laughs> But so so I think we're definitely still feeling the effects of the pandemic because I mean even something like West Side Story which I mean not only did you have Steven Spielberg who is you know one of the few directors that people who never watch movies are like yeah I know that guy I love his movies 
um, is barely pulling 25 mil after two weeks uh, with a movie that was pretty heavily marketed. Um, so I, I think we're definitely still seeing the pandemic side of things. Um, but also, yeah, Disney has not been too kind to their Fox properties. Um, so you look at like Kingsman coming out this next week. You know, Kingsman is going head to head with Spider-Man and The Matrix. And I can already tell you which of those two movies are going to <laughs> do better. <laughs> uh, like Kingsman, you know, it's never been a, a mega hit franchise because even the second one struggled a little bit compared to the first. Um, but they just, they haven't really been kind. Um, now, the one thing about Kingsman is it's had like two years of trailers. But something like Nightmare Alley is, I don't even think that was on my radar until October. And I saw a trailer for it before something, and I was like, oh, this must be Del Toro's Pinocchio. And then, <laughs> no, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's an actual movie. Um, so I, I think that definitely plays into some of what we're seeing going on, is Disney just has so much on their slate that they're trying to get rid of. Um, and this is pretty common just with entertainment in general. Like, the, the new boss is going to, by default, hate the old boss's projects. Um, that happens all the time in like TV networks where they just kill pilots and first season shows. And I think we're seeing just a much larger scale of that same kind of ego issue. Yeah. And there's, there's no risk if you're the Disney executive, right? Cause you didn't kind of oversee these projects. So if they fail, you can just say that was just Fox being dumb. You know, I'm great. I continue. I, you should, you should continue to pay my salary and kind of listen to what I have to say, right? There's really just, you know, we'll just throw it in theaters and see what happens. Last duel at over $100 million budget, whatever. Throw it in the theaters. Don't market it. Just see what happens. And if not, it's a tax write-off, right? Um, so it's just, yeah, it's kind of like the the fear that I've had for a while with the monopolization of um, distributors where Disney can kind of just kind of do whatever they want with these, with these movies. And, you know, from me who tries to see as much as possible in the end it's not the biggest deal in the world right because i'm going to seek out things like the last duel and see them eventually i still haven't seen it yet but uh wow, to rectify that. <laughs> yeah really uh but i, I will was there see day it. one <laughs> but there are a lot of people that for the, the marketing is really important because they're, they're probably they might never see it you know and i think it's just it's just kind of a bummer it really is i'd I like a lot of this, the super the superhero stuff. Maybe not as much as a lot of people, but you know, I do I do enjoy a lot of different things. I like to see that in theaters. So it's not great. It's not great for me. Yeah, and I think so. I think Disney execs and just marketing departments definitely have a hand in how this is going down. Uh, but I also think the pandemic still is really responsible for a lot of this too. So not just in the sense that there are people that are still staying home or there are theaters that aren't offering, you know, their full auditorium size yet and that kind of stuff. Um, but also we, I think we've kind of forgotten just how long we went without any new movies <laughs> from major studios that were coming out of theaters and they all just kept getting pushed back and pushed back um, until the point where like, or, you know, originally everything was coming out in July, like, Black Widow, Top Gun, Mission Impossible, like everything was due to July. Then July came, everything got pushed back again um, until we got to September. And then Shang-Chi, you know, like an F-tier Marvel Comics, like side character 
just made buku bucks at the box office and then everyone was like oh we're holding on to our dates and then suddenly venom moved up a week and no time to die was like okay we're actually we're actually gonna have time to die this time um (laughs) and so everybody was like well we can make money now we might as well just stick to the release dates we've already been marketing at um i think like the last duel kind of got caught up in that um because that was you know right i think that was the week before venom or the week after maybe Um, but right within that window where you know studios had time to either commit or move uh but they had to do something quick after shang chi came out um so i feel like we're still seeing the side effects of that because even the matrix opening this close to spider-man seems a little bizarre just from warner brothers standpoint uh you know the matrix is testy in a lot of people's memories um and you're you know you're going up against spider-man uh so it's I think we're seeing a lot of that where they're like, well, we've already got stuff in the pipeline. We can't keep pushing it back forever. We might as well just plant the flag now and see what's still standing after the holidays. Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. And then like like we were talking before we got on, like January is going to be big time entertainment in January this year. Going to go see Morbius like 10 times, right? Scream um, with an extra large V. <laughs> exactly. It's just, yeah, it kind of like it's that echoes a lot with what i was saying earlier like people if they're going to risk getting sick to go to the theaters they're going to see something that they have a, a large, much larger attachment to but even with within the same week like yeah they're going to go see spider-man or matrix over something that they've maybe heard of before in nightmare alley because that movie is the original is really great and has a criterion release and all that but I, like that doesn't really have a, like a big cultural like resonance these days even if it's a really good movie um it's like they're just gonna go see that like it's just obvious like they're gonna go they're probably gonna go once and go see the thing that they know um so it really does it really yeah it just all these things are just not helping the little guy once again so it's just i don't know uh it makes me sad (laughs) all right well you're ready to get into the big one (laughs) sure so uh Spider-Man, uh, Spider-Man No Way Home, the end of the first uh, Holland Watts trilogy, uh, finally released, and man, do they churn these Spider-Man flicks out like clockwork. Just every two years, even in the middle of a pandemic, Sony's got to keep them coming. Uh, so it's finally here. You know, this movie... Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if this one was ever heavily pushed back. I know originally it was slated for this summer, um, cause Sony is really good about cranking stuff out on a two year timeline. Um, but it got pushed back into the traditional star Wars spot. Um, so it'll have a killer weekend next weekend as well. Uh, but it is here and I'm going to be honest, uh, this movie kind of sucks. <laughs> the biggest Spider-Man fan I know hates this movie. Um, yeah. And we should say that we're going to go full full spoilers off the bat on this yeah. I honestly, I honestly don't no know how you, <laughs> I don't know how you talk about this movie <laughs> without talking about spoilers other than just being like it sucks or it's fine so there you go if you don't want to listen to us spoil this movie go I don't know watch the movie or go for a walk or <laughs> something I don't know don't listen to this podcast better yet but go yeah. watch Nightmare Alley <laughs> yeah they need your well I, I would say they need your money but that's just gonna go to Disney so maybe not but watch it if you want. I don't know. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, you felt. I was. It's funny because you felt uh, 
more strongly about this movie than I did. Um, I actually liked it a little bit. I've since waned since I've seen it. Um, but yeah, I think when you look at this movie kind of wrapped into what it kind of means for the box office and its importance in that respect, uh, that soured me a little bit on how I feel about this movie. Um, but I can't deny that there was a part of me, the the little kid in me, who sees when they see three Spider-Men, three Spoodermen on screen. Like I was like, ah, that's pretty cool. They're, they're all web slinging together. Like I, I can't help myself in that respect. So I, we'll get into more specifics. But I had, I had a decent sugar high watching this movie. I enjoyed myself while I watched it. I don't know if it was good for me. It definitely wasn't good for me. But I had fun nonetheless. The candy bar is good now and then. <laughs> I was really excited for this going into it especially given the rumors that uh, Tobey Maguire was going to make his seven-year-long hiatus come to an end in order to return to Spider-Man. And, like, I was hyped for it. I couldn't see it opening night because I was out of town. I was like, all right, I just got to avoid the internet for three days. Um, And then finally got to see it yesterday afternoon, Saturday, so I, like, two days later, um, and was just walking out of it and i was like i can't dislike this movie can i and then just as i let it sit on me all night i was like no this movie actually really sucks like i don't like this movie at all (laughs) um you know i i haven't felt this way about a movie since rise of skywalker um because kind of like you said spider-man's very important to me just like star wars is now i will say that when rise of skywalker came out i actually went to bed angry like <laughs> I was so pissed at how bad that movie was. <laughs> so uh, th- this one's not quite that level, but there's a lot of um, very hollow fan service and callbacks and very J.J. Abrams-esque, hey, remember this thing you like? Moments that just irritated the hell out of me with No Way Home. Yeah, I w- I, there's a few things in here like the... Uh... I'm a scientist myself thing. There's a lot of um, tip of the caps to all the Spider-Man memes that have become super popular. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of cute. But then they did it for like all of them. Like there's the one part where they're in the, the laboratory and Ned says like, hey, Peter. And they all just like start pointing at each other. And it's like, oh, okay, I get it. They're doing the meme and all that. Um, yeah, like they, they did that a lot. They certainly, this is certainly a movie for the fans. Uh, which has become a very negative thing to say, but this clearly, I like. There is something like I think earnest to this movie's appreciation for Spider-Man fandom because obviously it's generations of Spider-Man fans, and they're all coming together to watch all of their favorite Spider-Man. If it was Tobey Maguire, if it was Andrew Garfield, or if it's Tom Holland, they all come together. They all share things about their lives, these characters, and save the day together and um kind of impart wisdom on tom holland and there's stuff that's really sweet about this movie in that sense because you can the way the the main reason i like this movie is it's kind of just one big therapy session uh for all these characters um you can look at it and this might sound weird because this is a silly marvel movie where people are swinging around on webs but you can kind of look at it as one a big allegory for um prisoners um like they're getting back into just regular life, you know, uh, where um, kind of 
bringing them back into um, like, like accepting that their their previous faults and giving them second chances and allowing them to live their lives and bringing them back into the fold and allowing them just to live and do what they please again. And then there's something about them like the inherent goodness of all people that they have that I think that um, Tom Holland is grappling with a lot in this, in this uh, movie as Spider-Man where even um, you have the green goblin who uh, kills May. And we'll, I guess we'll talk more about that in, um, in, uh, in depth, but uh, he's really struggling with uh, if people are inherently good or not, or if they deserve their chance, their another chance, even if they've failed so hard before. Um, and I think the movie ultimately has a very positive outlook on that, even for as hard as it might be to accept some people for who they are. So um, I, I quite like that little little meta piece of it uh, and, and when I watched it. But um, yeah, some of the fan service, it does get very, very tough to watch at times. I'm not going not gonna <laughs> to fight you on that one. Yeah, my enjoyment of this movie peaked when I heard the flugelhorns kick in and play the little doc ock motif the first time you see him off on the bridge and i was mm-hmm. like all right that's a cool moment of fan service like just to have that little like two second blip of the the horns coming in um from his his theme and then once norman osborne winks at the camera and is like you know i am something of a scientist myself <laughs> that was where i was like no and then most of the movie especially when it comes to the humor just feels like those things you see on Reddit where they like force a robot to watch every Spider-Man movie and then like just sit on Raimi memes for an hour and it was like, here's our script. (laughs) And so you have just almost every line of dialogue specifically from Tobey Maguire and Doc Ock um, just has a really, really cheap reference to something from the Raimi trilogy. Um, and so there's like a moment where, you know, they're on the Statue of Liberty and, and Tobey Maguire is like, my back, which, you know, is a, a famous scene in, in that movie. And Tobey Maguire's, you know, the reason he almost got replaced by Jake Gyllenhaal in Spider-Man 2. Um, and it's like, but it's so cringe in that moment in the movie because they're trying to force all these lines that don't fit into this universe. And the thing that really bothers me with the villains is the way they just try and point the camera at how ridiculous all of those things are. Like, when you watch a comic book movie, the villain plots are ridiculous, right? Like, Doc Ock's trying to build a sun in the middle of New York. Uh, The lizard is trying (laughs) to turn everybody into a lizard, right? No one watches that and is like, yeah, this is such a realistic movie. I love it. Um, But, you know, in this movie, it feels like all the Spider-Men are just deciding like, oh yeah, I'm in on the joke now. These villains are so stupid. Um, and because, you know, you're only seeing them for, you know, a few minutes at a time, you know, um, their their plans do become very schlocky and these villains do become just caricatures. Like, uh, I, you look at Sandman. What does Sandman do? He shows up, says, Spider-Man, it's me, Flint Marco, the Sandman. That's an actual verbatim quote from the movie. <laughs> and then it's like, I have a daughter. I have a daughter. I have a daughter. And that's it. Like, that's all he does in the movie. And, you know, 
he does those same things in Spider-Man 3, and as flawed as Spider-Man 3 is, there's actually relationships built through that, right? Like, you see his relationship with his daughter. You see him have moments where he's just by himself reflecting on things, and he never, he doesn't, you know, go up to Peter Parker or to Venom in Spider-Man 3 and be like, I have a daughter. No, like, <laughs> he shows the character through actions, and you just don't get that in this movie, because all these characters do is talk, 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 and it's all just like the quippy dialogue that the MCU is known for, which, you know, I like the MCU. Um, I, I normally don't mind that thing, but it was just so obnoxious to me in this movie because that's all it was, was just like reference, joke, reference, joke, reference, joke, back and forth, back and forth, over and over for two and a half hours. Yeah, it's, it, there are so many callbacks in this movie. I, I think it ultimately gets to a place where I'm not applauding the movie, but I'm not overly angry at it. Because the way I look at it, um, the third act of this movie is very much a riff on like previous iterations of the character. Like this time, Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man saves MJ, or you know, Gwen in Spider-Man 2, but he saves, saves her. You have the My Back thing. You have all these remixes of things that happen. They talk about how... Um, uh, like one of the other Spider-Man killed his best friend. And then Ned is like, I, I hope you don't kill me, you know, like, but in, in the end it gets to a point and then you have Tom Holland with, uh, the glider, the green goblin glider. And he ultimately decides not to act on his anger. And I think the ultimate point is that, um, because all of these universes do have their similarities in ways, even though they are different, but they are connected in a lot of ways that you can still choose to become better and be good in the end and become your own thing. And whether or not that leads to more interesting original Spider-Man movies down the road, maybe. Um, but I think it does, it, it does lead, I think the Tom Holland character to make an interesting um, choice at the end, obviously, because he chooses not to be remembered by everybody. And I hope that it becomes a really interesting um, plot point for the next movie because I think Amy Pascal said they're going to try to make as many Spider-Man movies as Tom Holland wants to make so we're getting more of these um, but yeah I think that ultimately maybe does that set up a better movie than the movie we got probably you know in the end but ultimately I think it does serve the idea of what this story is that it's, it's whatever the, the past is for any of these individuals you can choose to do better and we can choose to accept you for it um and i think that there's something very human about that in the end but at at the same time I, that sounds pretty artsy fartsy when you see um willem dafoe just cackling on screen which he is great by the way i love willem dafoe but like there is so many like obviously schlocky superhero stuff in here that will make your skin crawl a little bit but i do think there is I think John Watts, the best parts of his Spider-Man movies are when, like, Tom Holland and Zendaya and Ned just kind of get to hang out and be humans for a second. Because when there's, like, action going on, all they're doing is quipping, like you said before, right? Uh, just quips after quips, and then that's the action sequence is over. But, you know, when they actually get to, like, hang out in the donut shop and talk to each other, like, it's really nice. And obviously, like... Zendaya is one of the best actress, young actresses we have. I think Tom Holland um, actually showed that he like impressed me a little bit with some of the, the emotional depth that he got to um, acting wise in this movie. 
um, and um, Jacob Adelon, I just really love. He's just a lovely, <laughs> lovely actor. Ned. Yeah, he's just great. So when they actually get to just talk to each other, um, it's really sweet. And I think the last like 15 minutes of this movie where Tom Holland goes back into the donut shop, he has like the whole note recited to himself that he's going to say to MJ to get her to remember him and he decides not to and they have like this really sweet silent moment it was like wow like in all this and all this clutter and like 10 like villains that were in this movie we have this one really silent moment uh, that was really touching in the end so I kind of wish obviously this is a 300 million dollar movie we weren't gonna we're not gonna get a whole movie full of that but I wish there were a few little more beats of that because I do like those smaller character moments because there are some of them in the clutter here that I really like, but yeah, I just wish there was more of them. Yeah. And I'm going to echo that. Cause I think the first 30 minutes of this movie before Dr. Strange shows up is actually pretty solid. Like, especially that scene where they first go to high school, which not only is really funny because Hannibal Burris is just being Hannibal Burris. Yeah. <laughs> JB smooth too. Yeah. It's just, it's just, great. Yeah. Mark Star. Two, it's really funny. Cause those two weren't, in like they haven't shared a spider-man movie yet because hannibal was in the first one and jb was in the second one so it was nice to see them just like bouncing off of each other for this little like two minute scene um but like all of the real world pressure and just the high school stakes of like you know how do you go to math class well everyone thinks you're a war criminal um and it sets (laughs) up these really interesting things that follow straight off the tail of far from home which you know unfortunately we don't really get to see because then Daredevil shows up in lawyer magics things and then all of a sudden nobody's in trouble anymore. Uh, they just can't get into college. And then, you know, Doctor Strange shows up. Um, and then you kind of get back to that at the end. And I really did like the end, like you said, that last 15 minutes. Um, and I think this movie does set up a more interesting Spider-Man than it delivers. Um, because I think, you know, the other moment of fan service that got me besides the flugelhorns was watching Spidey sling into New York in that like classic, like blue and red spider outfit that he sewed, you know, in his crappy apartment in the middle of Manhattan. (laughs) Um, And so I I think it does set up a really interesting character of, you know, who is Peter Parker and Spider-Man when he's absolutely alone, like no Aunt May, no happy, no Iron Man. Um, I think weirdly that could also set up like, it feels like that carried over from when they didn't think they were going to have Spider-Man in the MCU anymore. Because that seems like a really convenient way to be like, well, why doesn't Spider-Man show up in the Avengers movies anymore? Because everyone magically forgot him. Um, but I do I do like the, the parts where it takes the character through that kind of thing. Um, but like you said, there's just so much happening and so many characters in this movie that we don't get many scenes like that. Like as soon as, you know, Peter rounds all the villains up and it's like, hey, I'm going to take you to my apartment to fix you. Ned and MJ are pretty much gone for a solid 45 minutes. Um, and they, you know, even in the final battle, they don't really have much to say or contribute. They, you know, have a fun little portal scene. Um, and that's pretty much it until the end. And so I feel like they threw away what they had with this current trio because they wanted to play with more Peters and play, you know, with... Jamie Foxx's Electro, who's, you know, definitely not the same character he played in The Amazing Spider-Man 2, <laughs> no matter what they say. I like, do love how, because they totally, like, they totally throw it away as, like, yeah. multiverse hijinks that he's just really cool and suave now. Or he's like, like, 
he's like the energy here is different and then that's yeah like, that's the explanation. it's like every other every other villain's the same except for the one that was that sucked the most <laughs> <laughs> so they had to change him uh, but you know jamie fox being suave i have no i have no notes for that that's pretty good and i thought he was really good in this movie too because he's yeah. probably i mean there's the the stuff with the goblin but he's probably maybe he has he's the villain with the most screen time in this movie probably yeah because it's very doc ock heavy early on um but he also disappears for 45 minutes like you see him jump away on the side of a building and then he just kind of randomly shows up on the statue at the end of the third yeah that was the thing that i was really confused about because it's weird yeah he like he disappears and then goblin and spider-man have their first fight and then Aunt May dies and then he's just not in the movie and then he just shows back up again and Electro is like, oh, yes, like, you're ready. Like, he thinks he's going to fight by his side, even though he saw Dog Ock get, like, quote unquote, fixed earlier on. It's so weird. And then he's, like, so surprised when Dog Ock puts, like, the thing that gets rid of all of his electricity on his chest. He's like, how could you do this to me? Like, as he didn't see him get fixed. It was really weird. I had no, I was like, what? Like, what? this makes no sense at all. But, yeah, they do, they do try... I think the most to rewrite the Jamie Foxx character. I was like, eh, okay, I see what you're doing, movie. Yeah, and it's weird. Uh, part of the thing that didn't settle well with me is just how these characters react with their own Spider-Man. Um, because some of these characters, you don't have any real idea of what context they're being pulled from. So like Sandman, Sandman was never a bad guy in Spider-Man 3. He beats up Spider-Man at the end because Venom convinces him to. But in this movie, he's just like, I will kill you because I have a daughter. Uh, <laughs> you did not then, like Sandman in this movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> and and he's, he's made of mud the whole time, which was never a thing in, in Spider-Man 3 either. Um, but then you have, you know, even Doc Ock, you know, that was that relationship with Peter was such a cornerstone of that movie. Right. And like the climax of that movie is Peter you know, reaching through to him. Um, so it felt like we were having to pull characters out of a midpoint from movies that already had a resolution and then having to watch the Spider-Man try and reach people they'd already reached. I think what could have been a lot more interesting was if, you know, they were given the chance to reach villains that they hadn't gotten to. Like, you know, how would Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man fare against the lizard? Or how would Andrew Garfield handle you know the green goblin like how would how would these characters who failed in a certain regard reach you know kind of fix each other's mistakes almost which seems to be kind of the theme of the movie um you know especially as tom holland's playing around with the villains and trying to cure them and you know give them a second chance and that kind of thing i just felt like they squandered it in a in a fight where they're all dispatched of you know paint by numbers really quickly like all right we're gonna take this guy out and then this guy and then this guy and then this guy and then we're done yeah, they're like, all right, you're Peter one, I'm two, I'm three. Okay, we can fight. We can all fight together now. Ready, break. Um, yeah, I would. Sl- I mean, I I get what you're saying. I think I would slightly disagree. Where I think this movie is ultimately about personal growth uh, for a lot of these characters, and kind of like what I said earlier, how I you can kind of mirror that to um, like pr- like prisoner integration back into society and things like that, and just therapy in general. Um, but yeah, it's. There's just, like, the fact that this movie works even a little bit, I think, is such a balancing act. I think we, I mean, we saw it with Infinity War and Endgame, and, like, those are, 
like it's the same kind of idea where it's like, wow, I can't believe they had a movie with sixty characters and the movie kind of holds together. Like that's so impressive. Yeah, and but here, those movies um, were good. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, it's. I think like I I am amazed at kind of how much of a balancing act this movie is. Like the fact that I felt anything with this movie, and like you know, I'm the cynical asshole of this podcast. The fact that I felt anything with this movie. Fair enough. <laughs> the fact that I think that this movie even works at all for me, um, to the point where I would like ultimately recommend it to people, um, I, th- I do think is impressive. Because I do think there are, like I said, those smaller moments that are great. Um, and also, I gotta say, to turn positive here, I thought Andrew Garfield was fucking incredible in this movie. <laughs> like, he... I thought he was so good. Like I'm not even bullshitting you. I thought he was like one of my. He's like one of my favorite supporting performances I've seen this year. I thought he was incredible in this movie because he's doing like a. There, it's funny because you you mentioned earlier how we don't know exactly where these characters were when we bring them into this universe, and it's funny because it seems like he his Spider Man is like the most like I had I mean I've well since the last time you've seen me I've had a rough life where I am so alone no one likes me um and it's also like a meta commentary on like where we left his Spider-Man how no one like his movies are like the least memorable of all of them and also because he was in a very public relationship with Emma Stone during the making of those movies. And then they broke up shortly after and he's just been doing weird movies like mainstream and under the silver Lake ever since. Uh, and so it's him like grappling with his public persona as well. It's just, it's so good. I love it. He's bringing his weird twitchy theater kid energy to the movie. I just, he's hilarious. I like his jokes all worked for me. I think cause he's just such a good actor. It just, it's just because he, he's by far the best actor of the three Spider-Man. I oh, think yeah. in general. Yeah, so there's it's, no contest there. <laughs> yeah, so it's just like, he's just there. He's probably given nothing on the page, but he is delivering so much. Like the the part where he first comes in from his portal and they're making him crawl across like the ceiling, like is really funny, and all of his jokes are really good, and his lines are movies are really good. Um, yeah, I just thought he was just fucking amazing in this movie. I loved him. I really, really loved him. Yeah, and so, and this is something I didn't expect, as Andrew Garfield is typically my least favorite Spider-Man, but I think he was actually my favorite Spider-Man in this movie. Um, Probably, Just because yeah. he does get that, I mean, he does have that Bella Swan, like, <laughs> twitchy high schooler energy to his performance. But it's so um, good. <laughs> he doesn't, like, he is so good at that. I don't know what it is, and he, I, th- I think he's developed it more since he's taken on more bizarre roles in the aftermath of like the fallout from spider-man like he's become more twitchy like if you watch something like tick tick boom which is a movie i don't really like but i think he's interesting in it he is just twitching all over the place and just trying like just doing all this crazy stuff and he's that has like gone back into his spider-man persona but now he's being like he's able to like quip and actually be like fun and handsome again like he's not letting himself do that in his other movies so it it works. It's a crazy blend, but it all works together. Yeah, so I I really enjoyed his his stuff in the film, and I think even like that spider web scene you're talking about is very much something that like his character would do in the Amazing Spider-Man movies. Like it's the same, just like weird crawling on top of the ceiling kind of energy that that his character <laughs> had in those movies. Um, but my real disappointment was with Tobey Maguire, like. 
if you had told me a year ago that I'd get to see, you know, some kind of, even if it, you know, hardly follows Spider-Man 3 up at all, some kind of return to that franchise, I would have been like, you got to be kidding me. I will kill someone for this. Um, but I just, to me, it didn't feel like um, Sam Raimi and Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man coming back to the screen. It felt like the actor Tobey Maguire playing a different Spider-Man Um you know, who just happens to have the same backstory. Um, and it just, the, the really dopey lovesick Peter Parker, that's so much a staple of those movies didn't come. It was just like a really awkward older Spider-Man. Um, and again, you don't, you have no idea like where this character is coming from. Obviously he's quite a bit older, uh, cause he very much looks like a 40 year old Spider-Man and not the, uh, 30-year-old teenager that he was the last time Yeah, the, the youth pastor joke was pretty good that they <laughs> yeah. threw in for his appearance. I, that one was really funny. That one, and I think the, uh, I really like when he steps up and he and Andrew get into that little, like, spider off uh, where they're, like, jump, yeah. like, copying each other's flips and, like, they end up, he shoots his web shooter, uh, which I thought was, like, a clever way to hide, you know, a joke that'll come 20 minutes down the line. Um, <laughs> But I just, I didn't get the same love for for that Spider-Man. To me, it it felt like a different character. Just that energy, that sentimentality to that generation of Peter Parker just never showed up in this movie for me. Yeah, I thought thought Toby Guy was bad in this movie. Hate to say it. He was just like, I mean, he hasn't acted in seven years, right? His last movie was Pawn Sacrifice. Um, Uh, Don't forget Boss Baby. Yeah, well, he's a, fair. He's a, he's a voice actor. <laughs> yeah, so it's... He just hasn't acted. You know, he's older. He just looks like a dad. And he's just been out gambling. That's Player X, right? Because he's, <laughs> he's Player X from Molly's Game. Just out there gambling, taking everybody's money in Hollywood. Um, yeah, he's just... Like, he's just not very... Like, I've never thought he was a great actor anyway. I think the Raimi films are so hard to clone because there is such a weird alchemy to those movies because... They are so silly, but they are also so self-serious. And so some of like the awkward, like doe-eyed stuff that Tobey Maguire is doing in that movie works so well because they kind of just kind of like latched onto that tone in some weird way. Um, but yeah, he just isn't. He's not very good in this movie. He's he clearly is there. Like he is like the weight of the nostalgia this movie is carrying is like weighing most heavily on his shoulders. Like he is. Like he's really just there to be like the old old grandpa. He's honestly like old Cap, you know, like <laughs> giving us all the old and good memories. But he has to like actually act in the movie, so it's just yeah, it's tough. He's not great in it. It's cute. It's fun to see him, I guess, for a little bit since we haven't seen him act in so long. So I think Tobey Maguire is an actor who very much needs a director that makes the role for him. Yeah, exactly. Um, because if especially if you look at you know obviously Spider Man's a big one, um, but if you look at um, like some of his earlier work like Pleasantville and the Cider House Rules are I think two really strong performances for what they are um, for him and he does a really good job because you very much feel like they're writing this dopey <laughs> teenage character for him and right. I think part of it is you know he can't pull off being a dopey teenager anymore now he has to be a dopey adult. Um, so I'll be interested to see uh, how he does in Babylon because that's 
that's number one most anticipated for 2022. Damien Chazelle coming back hot off of First Man. Um, I guess it was like four years ago at that point, but um, <laughs> yeah, and also First Man did do so well. Yeah. But, you know, it's good. It's a really good movie. Cold like, off of First like, Man, Damien Chazelle, <laughs> Tobey Maguire. Um, so I was really excited to see him return for this movie, but the Spider-Man that I fell in love with as a kid just didn't show up. Yeah, and it's it's really hard to expect that, you know, with all the different stuff that's going on in this movie. Yeah, it's just... I don't know. I just... I really... I latch on to a few small moments in this movie. Like, I think the, the moment where um, Tom Holland's Spider-Man, his Spidey sense goes off when he's fixing all of them, and you're just like... He's just like walking around. His eyes are wide, and like the it, this like the there's like a droning sound, and all of a sudden he realizes that that the goblin like uh, personality has come out of Willem Dafoe. I thought that scene was really good and really well done, and one of like the few moments of actual tension in this movie, because you know like it's a Marvel movie. You know, fight the bad guys in the end, it all works out one way or another. <laughs> uh, with that in that scene, I was like, I have no idea what's going to happen here. Uh, like so anything can happen and then like that shoe drops and then Willem Dafoe gets to be amazing just a national treasure Willem Dafoe um, so I love that I love the, all their like little moments between Zendaya and Tom Holland showing off their I guess their real life chemistry on screen since they're they're dating now <laughs> I guess right um, and then yeah stuff with Andrew Garfield I just fucking man love that guy um yeah, it's just, and then even like stuff from, we haven't really talked about Benedict Cumberbatch at all, which is interesting. Oh, yeah, he is in this um, movie. Yeah, it's funny because in the trailer, it makes it look like he really fucked up the spell. And well, he does in the movie as well. But it's funny in, in the actual movie where it's like all this, all this stuff until it becomes like a real issue in the end. He's like, wow, like spider-man just kind of ruined my my afternoon yeah i'm just angry i'm just trying to drink coffee over here and um but he just ruined like my afternoon i'm so sick of this so i thought that was like kind of a fun touch where it's like this all of this is beneath him until at the end where he's like oh shit the universe might implode <laughs> but up until that point he's like i just don't, like i can't even deal with you people like get away from me <laughs> i thought that was pretty fun too and also that they they let in a big snowstorm from like siberia through one of the portals. I thought that was really funny. For it, the... uh, it made me sad, though, because Wong has to die now. Because Wong is Sorcerer Supreme, so he's definitely going to get the axe in Doctor Strange 2. Well, yeah, so you, I mean, if Stephen Strange could be the Sorcerer Supreme again. Yeah, it's, the, it's unfortunately the rules Red of King. celebrity, right? Like, Benedict Wong is more likely to die in a movie than Benedict Cumberbatch, right? <laughs> that's just kind of... It sucks to yeah, say that. that's kind of how he, it works. He could have been the funny sidekick, but now that he's the higher up, he has to die. Yeah. I don't know. But, uh, Anything else to say about this movie? Lots Anything? of things. Uh, no, I do, <laughs> I do want to talk about Aunt May um, before we kind of wrap up on No Way Home. Um... I felt absolutely nothing when Aunt May died because for the past five years, she has been the butt of hot ant jokes and she's never really, especially in Far From Home, which she's hardly in, um, had a moment to be Aunt May. Um, so you kind of look back at Rosemary Harris and even Sally Field, you know, they both in their own way have these really good, just ball breaking scenes with Peter. 
um, where they kind of call him on whatever nonsense he's doing because of his double life, you know, even if they don't understand it. Um, or like, you know, there's a really tender scene in Spider-Man 2 where Peter is like, finally confesses that he got Uncle Ben killed. Um, and even in even in the Amazing Spider-Man movies, um, Aunt May just like doesn't put up with anything Peter does. Um, and she really puts him in his place and help gives him perspective on Uncle Ben dying and on uh, George Stacy dying and on Gwen Stacy dying. And Marissa Tomei's Aunt May never got that. Um, she has like a very brief like hug with Spider-Man at Homecoming uh, before he transitions back to Iron Man's approval. Um, but she's she's never been more than just kind of an eye candy joke. And so <laughs> the one time she she finally gets you know a moment to contribute and to be kind of that Uncle Ben esque character is after she's been stabbed and then falls over dead and then gets back up, delivers a monologue and falls over dead again. Um, and I just, for me, that was where I really was like, no, I think this movie actually sucks. Because, uh, you know, <laughs> you look at, like, the MCU's never been good at deaths, let's be honest. Uh, the only yeah. deaths that have any real weight to them are weirdly uh, Thor's mom in the Dark World, because the score is just really good at that point, and then Tony Stark, because I think, like, that death obviously meant a lot you know, within the context of that movie. Um, but I just felt nothing while this was going on. Oh, I'm going to add Yondu to that list because that was a really moving part <laughs> of Guardians 2 as well. Yeah, it's... I definitely agree with you where, um, yeah, Aunt May really hasn't had much to do in a lot of these movies. Like, Sally Field, I thought it was really good in Amazing Spider-Man, the Amazing Spider-Man movies. She gets a lot of chances to actually just, yeah, like, talk to Andrew Garfield and act you know um yeah i i felt a little more in this scene i think mostly just because i I love marissa tomei whenever she shows up in a movie and she can give you so much more than like what is written for the character so i thought her like her line delivery is like obviously affecting because she's such a great actress but yeah she she really hasn't been a big part of these movies it's really been um like tom holland being stuck in like I guess Rob Downey Jr.'s shadow or I guess Spider-Man and Iron Man's and him kind of just struggling with that instead well um, I think oh, I think even in the last movie you had Happy like when when Spider-Man gets hit by a train like he goes and he and Happy have this really big heart-to-heart that kind of you know rebounds him into the third act so I think honestly I think killing Happy would have been a way more meaningful death in that moment and that's kind of what the trailer's built towards but yeah, like Aunt May has had so little to do in these movies that I just didn't, I didn't feel anything. Yeah, it's, I do like, I think my favorite things with Spider-Man in general are the smaller moments and the character lends itself to that because he's just a kid going through, going to school, you know, it's just when he's fighting aliens in space, I don't really, I check out a little bit. Like I much prefer when he's talking to he's talking to girls or he's just trying to go out and have fun and balance that with also being a superhero um so i yeah it's just i kind of just wish there were a few more moments of that in there and i think that lends itself to having more like more interactions with aunt may and having that interaction make more sense but um yeah i don't know it's a yeah it didn't it didn't quite work on me as well as i would as well as uh i wanted it to either yeah, and I mean, 
kind of touching on that point, that is what makes me excited for what they do next because, you know, they've effectively stripped Spider-Man of magicians and going to space and Stark technology and drones. Um, and he's just a kid broke running around New York in a spandex outfit that he made himself again, um, which I think really like takes us back to the heart of what makes that character work. Um, and I'm curious to see, you know, what, what do they carry over from this trilogy? Because, you know, now that we're moving into a new trilogy, we're going to be moving into new contracts. So do Zendaya and Jacob Batalon come over again? Um, or do we like explore more of the character? Do we, you know, they teased a lot of villains in the the sky constellations. I couldn't figure out what those were. Um, yeah, I think one of them was Rhino, right? Rhino was there. Craven yeah. the Hunter was there. Scorpion was there. Black Cat. If I pause the movie, I could probably tell you every single person that was in the sky. <laughs> I'm sure someone out there is. There's probably like a Screen Rant article about that already made or something. Um, but it does make me excited because I think they realize just how bloated Spider-Man's world has gotten. Um, especially being like the Tony Stark underling. And so I'm excited to see Spidey versus the world and to us to get, you know, back to a very much back to basics Spider-Man, which I think was also something they touched on uh, where Spider-Man was like, I'm part of the Avengers. And then the other Spider-Man were like, (laughs) the, yes. Like, cool, Uh, (laughs) what's that? (laughs) Um, So I did like that. And then... Um, before we wrap up Spider-Man, quick side note, that, uh, first post credit scene, uh, thoughts. Yeah, well, I guess that's where, that's, I guess that's where we're going next, right? I mean, we're gonna have Venom, probably, or the MCU's version of Venom. Um, I was kind of bummed that Tom Hardy did, like, at least show up and bring <laughs> his weird Venom energy to one of these scenes. So, uh, that was kind of, a, that was kind of a shame. Also, why does the one piece of Venom stay behind? That's that doesn't really make sense because like, that works magic yeah because so because because more movies right for a brief second when andrew garfield's in that alley in the portal and starts running i thought that was going to be venom like leaping through i'd be like oh that'd be such a good, good yeah twist. So, like here's this other spider-man and then tom hardy's venom just pops in but no <laughs> yeah yeah it's I hope I kind of what you were saying. I I do hope this makes like that gives them the opportunity to make a more street bound Spider Man movie next. Do I think they will do that? Probably not. They'll probably they'll probably like have some scene where Spider Man says something that like says like a certain word and that keys in like all these memories for for Zendaya and all the other people and then they get back to doing whatever they were doing before. But yeah, I think. Honestly, like one of my favorite moments in all of the Spider-Man movies has been in, funny enough, Spider Amazing Spider-Man Two, which is probably the worst one, <laughs> but um, the one scene where Spider-Man just walks home the kid who had his science project broken. He just walks him home and makes sure he's safe and just talking to him and making him feel good. It's like one of the few like really emotional human moments in these movie in these movies that it really worked for me. Well, I guess that's yeah. not true because the Raimi movies are fun. Um, but yeah, I just love that moment. And I think while I'm still kind of like, like in a wait and see mode to see like how good of an actor Tom Holland truly is. Like, I do think he would work amazing in those, in those moments where, um, he gets to just kind of be like, like I said, the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. So I hope it gets, I hope it kind of goes back to its roots a little bit in that sense. But, uh, do I think it will? Probably not. They'll probably 
do something else instead and make me sad inside. And then at that point, I'll probably go back at this conversation and be like, wow, I should have been harder on it because it didn't amount to anything. Because we're all, we just go on the hamster wheel again and again. They get you a little excited for the next one. Um, and that's it. Then you keep coming back and giving them money. So, yeah, there we are. <laughs> I, I was disappointed that they blipped Venom into the universe just to blip him back out. But I also thought that scene was really funny. Like, that was the funniest part of the movie for me. It was just Tom Hardy trying to wrap his head around, like, Thanos and the Avengers and Iron Man and all that. And I was like, you know what? That would be really, like, weird, especially for these other Spider-Men who it was just them. Um, so I had a lot of fun with that scene. But I was yeah. like, oh, I guess we won't get to see him play in the sandbox. Until they I mean, flip yeah. it back. <laughs> yeah, like Venom 2 is the best like gay love story of 2021. Um, that movie is so stupid, and I love it. And I love Tom Hardy just being weird and just taking all of Sony's money and making weird stuff and ending the end credits have a Tom Hardy rap song in it, and it's so stupid. Um, it's so I would have... I would have that, that kind of energy is just probably too unhinged for Marvel to make it work honestly like like let him honestly i kind of just want him to be over do his weird sony thing and those movies will be terrible but i'll love them all so much uh, <laughs> so but yeah it did feel like kind of a cheat because venom 2 really seemed like he was going to be a big part in this movie but guess not Nah, he's he's in his own little world <laughs> yeah he's gonna go hang around with jared leto i guess but uh, but it's weird because Michael <laughs> Keaton is in that movie, so they're gonna have to do some rewiring. Sony is trying so hard to get as much of that Marvel money as possible, and they're gonna do whatever it takes, and it'll probably be at the expense of all of us. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know. Well, I guess we'll deal with it when it comes. <laughs> um. So before we wrap up, let's go ahead and talk Nightmare Alley. Uh. So like I said earlier, the first trailer, I thought this was. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio uh, for Disney Plus and then I was like no this is a whole movie this looks way too hardcore to be a Pinocchio movie for Disney Plus um, so I have not seen the original uh, but the trailer really sold me on it and I mean I generally really like everything Guillermo del Toro does um, not not all of his movies are just A plus winners for me but I have never not enjoyed a del Toro movie um, so this was sitting on my most anticipated for the rest of the year list. Um, I do want to catch the original at some point, but I know you got a chance to check it out, right? Yeah. So the original is on the Criterion collection. Can't recommend it enough. Really good movie. Really good noir. Um, I was interested to see what Del Toro would do with this movie because I think the big thing that he would, that he was kind of signaling is like, there's going to be no fantastical elements in this movie because, you know, it's, the running theme through all of his movies is there are monsters in them, but the real monsters are the humans he met along the way. I guess is the, is the way to is the way to is the way to frame it. And in this one, there's no monsters. Well, there are there are monsters, but they're just all the humans. Everyone's terrible in this movie. Everyone's horrible, and it really does uh, mirror the cynicism of a lot of the noir movies from the '40s and '50s and coming coming out of a. Like the current, like during the war, and also like the per, the post-war sentiments of the time, where everyone just kind of hates everybody, and everyone's just awful and looking to one-up each other. And there, that's a lot of what this movie is exploring. Uh, and it certainly is a full movie, as you said before. It's 
two hours and 30 minutes. It's really long. Um, it's the original movie is like an hour and 40 minutes. It's, um, it's, it's a little sidebar. It's funny to see when we talk about noir movies as these big sprawling things like the Batman, it's going to go full noir three hour movie. But when all the, like the Maltese Falcon, all those movies are an hour and a half. There's just something to think about. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was always funny, but yeah, this movie is way too long, but it is good. You know, Bradley Cooper is the lead of this movie. Uh, who I think gives a really good performance. You have Kate Blanchett in there, Rudy Mara, uh, Ron Perlman in there, who is a great casting um, as the character of Bruno. Who I thought that's kind of an amazing choice to play that character, uh, if you've seen the original. And um, yeah, it's kind of it's mostly a beat for beat by beat re, uh, remake. There are a lot of scenes switched around and things like that uh, and like kind of lengthened because this movie is 50 minutes longer than the original <laughs> um, but it kind of do, it does follow basically the same beats again um, but it does have a lot of good things going for it um, I'm not in love with it entirely uh, and I think it's funny that you mentioned that you you don't uh, you kind of generally like a lot of del Toro movies as well and that's kind of how I feel but I, I honestly I take a more negative approach to it because there's so much that i love about his movies but they can they never i never quite get there with any of them Mm -hmm. like i think the shape of water is pretty good but i don't love it um honestly i don't think i've fallen in love with any of his uh english language movies for whatever reason there's always something missing with all of them i think there's something missing with this one too where i think the um the original ultimately is a more cohesively told story um and I think the like the this movie also also has like a like a Tim Burton esque digital photography look to it that I don't think I think it looks pretty but then it kind of gets into that weird freak show glossy thing that Tim Burton has really kind of um, kind of like fallen into in his past like decade or so and I think that kind of that gloss kind of kind of counteracts kind of just like the vile like down to earth like disgusting nature of all of these characters and kind of it like elevates them to it makes it look unreal when the the purpose of the story is to make is to cast the light on how real and awful everything is about the world in which we live um so that part didn't necessarily work for me but it's it's a good movie you know it's a lot of really good actors Willem Dafoe is in this one too really good really good supporting ca- performance for him um, it's a lot of really good actors getting to act and just talk to each other and possibly be sexually attracted to each other <laughs> or it's, it's just it's really good it, there's a lot of really good performances Bradley Cooper is one of his best performances um, would recommend it if you could see it but you probably can't because it's been taken up by Spider-Man showings <laughs> yeah I'm uh, desperately hoping that they carry it for at least another week so I can have more AMC passes to go see it <laughs> Yeah, it's uh it's worthwhile, I would say in the end. I think the ending of this movie, uh, I'll keep spoilers out of this because you know no one's really seen this movie, so give them a chance. But the ending of this movie is really good. And I think part like most of that is because the the original ending is so amazing and kind of just like a it's like a perfect screenwriting like trick. It's it's everything mirrors everything else and you kind of in that in, in that it like it displays just how like 
fall, much this person's fallen in the end and it's really good and the end and the ending of this new one uh kind of falls in that in that footsteps and makes it a little different but also just the same kind of gut punch in the end and just well, makes it feel like shit so <laughs> you know if you if you want to feel bad for two and a half hours this is the movie for you <laughs> nice <laughs> so yeah i can see why it's it's a tough sell in a lot of ways but you know it's really good actors actually getting to kind of say dialogue and not have to punch things so yeah there, there are positives in that respect it's just a shame that it wasn't marketed a whole lot because i you know i i didn't think i knew about it until october um and it was just the one trailer that i would occasionally see um actually i think it might have been the last duel was the first time i saw this trailer so I had to go see a movie that no one was seeing to go learn about a movie that nobody was seeing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of a tough one, too, because like I said, it's not a feel-good movie. Everyone in this movie is awful, and that's the point of the movie. So that's kind of a very tough sell, I think, to a general audience member because there's that, there's that old adage where it's like, you know, people are losing all day when they come home and watch the movie, watch a movie they just want to win. That kind of thing, where it's really it's a tough sell some, for a lot of people to just sit down and just like, just like bathe in the filth of humanity that a lot of the movies try to explore, and coincidentally those are a lot of the movies I like. So I don't know what that says about me, but um, yeah, it's it's just there's just a lot of really good performances in here that I, I think carry you through when this movie is kind of when the pacing is starting to wane or if it's not really doing anything as like like revolutionary when you compare it to the original um like you just you you get a great scene with bradley cooper and kate blanchett and they just get to act off each other for 10 minutes like you can't do much better than that you know so it's there's a lot of really good moments like that in here that i think power it and make it worthwhile in the end so it's really good yeah i uh definitely want to check this out um you know it's it's weird how many new movies we have uh, you know, Christmas is always a little bit busier of a movie season, but it feels like this week and next week it's like three or four like fairly large movies uh, dropping nationwide. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try and fit it all in over the break. But Nightmare Alley's a, a definite on that watch list. Yeah, it's if not, I'm sure you'll be able to watch it on Hulu or I guess wherever Disney dumps it in a few months because that's what they seem to do with all these movies anyway so uh but yeah oh i also realized i misspoke del toro is doing netflix's pinocchio not to be confused with disney plus's pinocchio that's both right coming there's out like next year. 10 pinocchio projects coming out i forgot about that one also not to be confused with roberto benini's pinocchio which just came out last year oh my god so. i don't want to talk about that movie ever again <laughs> oh man that that was a that was bad. <laughs> uh, or Drew Carey's Geppetto, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary sometime soon. So, It always comes back to Pinocchio in the end, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm excited to check it out. Um, also, would, would you recommend checking out the original first, or should I wait and be surprised by this one and then do the original? It's an interesting choice, because I would say watch the original whenever even if it's after you see the new one because the original is really good and it's a really great tyrone power um performance in the in the center of the frame um 
like I said, if you watch the if you watch the original, you're not, you won't be necessarily surprised at anywhere that this movie goes. Um, it does. There are some f- slight alterations to the to the Bradley Cooper Stanton Stanton Carlisle character that it makes. Um, but frankly, I don't know if I necessarily like a lot of those choices. They're not like crazy, but it just it. Kind of like it colors in the lines where the movie, the previous movie, kept it a little, kept it a little more vague, and it kind of doubles down and is like, make sure you understand how what this character is and like thinks. So, um, yeah, in that sense, maybe if you don't want to be surprised, or if you do want to be surprised, just watch the original and then watch the, the or watch the new one and watch the original later. But yeah, in any way, I would say just watch both because they both have their merits. Cool. Do uh, all of the original actors come back in this movie, uh, a la Spider-Man: No Way Home? Yeah, it's actually a backdoor multiverse story. So then they bring it in, and um, Orson Welles shows up. It's crazy. Like from <laughs> Citizen Kane, there's a whole Citizen Kane multiverse subplot. It's it's wild. It's it's really it's really crazy, really crazy storytelling. It's wild because didn't Orson Welles just have a new movie come out like eighteen months ago? Yeah, the other side no, of the wind, was it, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> that was that's another one. That's a good movie. If you if no one checked it out, and there's also I think Netflix did a good job with that because they, well, basically there was the footage, and then there was notes on how he would have edited it together if he had the money to do it, and then they just did that, and then the movie came out. It was really good, and then they had a, a documentary that came out with it called uh, the Those Who Wish Me Dead uh, that came out the exact same weekend. Whenever it came out, there. Recommend both. Maybe you see those instead of Spider-Man. I don't know. Incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, that, in a nutshell, that is the box office nonsense, Spider-Man, and Nightmare Alley. Um, So, yeah, next week is Christmas, which means release dates are all over the place. So I think Tuesday is the big release day this week. Uh, so that'll be The Matrix, that'll be Kingsman, that'll be American Underdog. Uh, depending on where you live, that'll be Licorice Pizza. Like, there's a ton coming coming to the box office this week. So it's pretty exciting. Santa's leaving lots of presents underneath the IMAX Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Proud of you for that one. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we'll be we'll be checking all those out. Um, and remember, you can always check us out online at moviebabble.com. And that has been this week's episode of the Movie Bubble Podcast. Mm-hmm.